0: Welcome to Future of Flushing, I'm Vito Khaleesi, with me is Jonathan Barron, and with us today is Drew Toussaint, the Director of Amateur Scouting for the New York Mets. Uh, Drew, you have had a pretty interesting life before you got to the Mets, so we're quickly going to talk about how you were drafted by the Angels, spent a few years there, made your way up to double A. You're originally from California, right? Compton, California. Compton, California, my bad. Right. <laughs> and, um, You made your way to Japan at one point, playing for the SoftBank Hawks, where Mets fans, you might recognize that game because that is where Kodai Sanga came here from. Now, why don't you tell us how you went from everything I just described to the other side of baseball and getting into scouting?
1: Yes, it kind of started off uh, during my off seasons of playing uh, in the Angels organization. I worked uh, at the MLB Youth Academy, the first one that was in Compton. And during that time, you know, I started you know, working with players, getting to know, you know, different type of players and seeing them from like ages of like six on up to high school level. And just going through that process, you know, day by day, working with players, instructing them and stuff like that, kind of like leaned into like uh, me wanting to evaluate players on a bigger scale with the team. Uh, and so just through some connections, I was able to start interviewing uh, with different teams. And then just so happened the Mets, uh, I was hired by our VP of Scouting now, Tommy Tanis, he hired me as a part-time scout in the LA
2: area. So this has been your first year uh, in your current role. What's it been like? You just completed a draft. Uh, so looking back from day one after the promotion to where you are, tell us about the entire experience at this point.
1: Yeah, man, it was, uh, it was a fun experience overall. Uh, i tell you, like, it was a lot more meetings, yeah, uh, a lot more collaborating with uh, different departments uh, that I hadn't done before, and then as much as why we have expanded baseball operations. So now it's getting to know new people as they were getting to know me too, and a bunch of people just getting to know each other within the organization, and then figuring out how we can uh, add to our draft process along with helping out with some other things.
0: And in the middle of all that, while you're getting used to this new position, there's also a new CBA that comes out in the last few years. Why don't you tell us how that changes the strategy of people in your position for example the lottery system that we have to deal with now how much does something like that change prep do you
1: have to change how early you start preparing because the numbers don't fall as clear as they used to you have an idea close to where you you gonna where you finish you know so like we, we finished 22nd we knew you know as a, a team that wants that's gonna spin at the major league level it's a possibility that we'll you know fall 10 spots um, so it doesn't really that much uh, affect our strategy of what we're going to do. As far as the money, the money part, uh, it it probably, you know, takes away a player or two, you know, a player and a half, essentially, of what you can uh, get. But as far as like just strategy of uh, how we uh, evaluate players and how we're going to line up the board, that doesn't affect it at all.
2: So we're about a month removed from the 2023 draft. But I want you to give listeners and us a peek behind the curtain. Take us to the very beginning of a year's draft process when does it start what does it look like and give us the whole picture from a to z from that very first day to the last selection you make yeah. in a year's draft
1: yeah as, essentially uh, the draft is a 12-month process mm-hmm. you know and, and actually you know we're doing some things you know kind of pushing the limits and we're expanding out even further with uh, you know scouting under more underclass players so um it starts before the draft even hits us so like this year for the 2024 class, uh, our guys started scouting those players before the draft was even over. Wow, um, so there's that, overlap pretty much. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely overlap uh, with the PDP league that uh, Mob runs, uh, the Cape Cod League, mm-hmm. and some of the other leagues, summer leagues that goes on. And that process starts from there. Uh, now we have guys that are uh, doing the East Coast Pro Showcase and then that next week is the Area Codes uh, Showcase. And those are some of the bigger high school events. And then the 18U uh, uh, team uh, that represents the, the states, they'll uh, have some games going on um, later on this month. And then the PG All-American game and a couple other like big one-day show, showcases right, right. that happen. So we spend you know most of the, till the end of the summer, scouting a lot of the high school players. And then the fall, you get back and start on the college players and then kind of some of the high school summer, um, I mean, uh, fall scout league teams and stuff like that.
0: I've heard some of your theories on scouting uh, in some other interviews you've done. And I saw how like in depth you go, like you look, uh, you look past what is just on the field. I've heard you say, that you look at a player and on their bad days, you try to see how they're taking that and like, are they still interacting with their team? Are they still hyping the guys up? You also talk to teachers, you talk to parents. So when you're prepping for a draft, that's a lot to do for the amount of people you're scouting. How do you balance all of that, even if it is a 12 month process?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have 16 area scouts. We have uh, about, I say eight to 10, uh guys that cover like nationally that look at players on a national or regional basis for us so it's a lot of information coming up and and, and, you know through pipelines and uh we count on everyone to get this information and filter through you know whether it's through our uh, weekly meetings that we have with area scouts or kind of like our monthly check-ins with some of our cross checkers just letting us know like hey this is what we have on this player from a makeup standpoint, from a data standpoint, from a, uh, just a peer scouting standpoint. So it's a lot of collaboration, whether it's with our scouts, with analytics, and you know, just different departments coming up with all this information to help us make decisions. So going based off of that, as you guys enter a draft,
2: and obviously the background like Vito just mentioned is very important, what are some of the other bedrock traits you guys look for do you try to identify in players that you think would be good fits for the New York Mets organization?
1: Well you know number one you you want to look at the talent right so you you build your list based off talent then the next thing I would say is like makeup Mm -hmm. you know knowing that hey talent is not the only thing that's going to get this guy to the big leagues he has to have the, the makeup because most mostly most players are going to need some extra development and knowing that this player has that type of makeup that he's gonna work hard. uh, He's gonna do, um, you know, have good nutrition, good recovery, good sleep habits, all this stuff combines and uh, to make up the player. And so, you know, we're digging into a lot of different stuff now, so much more information that help us, you know, make decisions on players.
0: Now, I think that's a good time to start talking about this past year's draft. And I think one player Mets fans are really interested in hearing the story behind is Brandon Sprout. Brandon Sprout was drafted by the team last year. We were able to come to a deal with him this year. Tell us like how much, what were the communications like in between this year and last year, and what changed that made you guys want to go all in on him this time around?
1: Right, well, the communication was very limited until until like right before the draft, because uh, uh, you know, getting him to sign the consent to to reselect, uh, that's our, that was a process. But you know, we went through and you hit the reset button after last year and you go back and reevaluate the player again. Right. And so he improved. Uh, we saw, you know, some better fastball command. Uh, we saw him using his pitches a little bit better, like developing a, a curveball, And, uh, he always had a good change up. So he got better as a, as a player. And we, you know, noted that and went back in the process and just had conversations with, uh, his advisors and, um, uh, they let us know that he was signed a consent, and he was, you know, he would be a part of our draft board.
2: Now, how pumped are you to have him part of the organization after a year's wait, but probably a, a well worth year's wait. Right. Just how excited should Mets fans be that Brandon Spro is a member of this organization?
1: Yeah, they should be really excited. You got you have a guy that uh, throws up in, in the hundreds, right? Yeah. Uh, he's a strike thrower, and he has some developing off-speed pitches that I think that we can we can get we can refine and get better and then uh, he's a good athlete. So he's, he's got a ton of, uh, he hits a ton of check marks for us uh, for, a pit, for a pitcher.
2: Now you mentioned athlete. Your first pick, Colin Houck. Mm-hmm. Mets fans know the name. Right. He was not just a great baseball player in high school, but also a quarterback and he had D1 scholarship offers. Right. Talk about Colin Hauck and talk about how important it is for you guys for, to draft a guy who is an athlete. We've seen him with Brandon McIlwain who played quarterback for a Power Five school, South Carolina, Cal, how important is that for you guys? When you see this guy is not just a baseball player, but at large an athlete, and, and relate that to
1: Hauk if you can. For me, and for us as a whole, we look at athletes as you know equals versatility, you know, and the ability to improve, uh, make adjustments, uh, you know. So we want to we want to always attack, you know, and we can get athletes in our in our system, uh, and specifically with Colin. Uh, we think like this could be a huge off season for him Mm -hmm. because he's always had to share time with football. Right. And so given him that a full 365 days of just pure baseball, uh, I think this is going to be a a huge jump for him, you know, early on. And so we're excited that he fell to us in the draft. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask, what was it like when you saw the numbers falling the way they were in that first round and that you realized, we could get halk in this draft
1: yeah we're excited you know you're seeing all the guys fall off the board and you know he's still kind of sitting up there same thing what happened last year with uh, kevin parada as well you know we both of those guys we did not think we would, we would have a chance of getting but when they you know start getting closer and closer you start getting that having that excitement uh that we can get a player that's pretty high on our board uh at a spot that we didn't think we would get him
0: and another exciting player in this draft was round three uh, Nolan McLean, two-way player. Do you want to tell us what goes into thought process with picking up a player like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just pure—just his raw ability on both sides of the plate. I mean, he's one of—he he has one of the highest exit velocities as a hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he throws—he has a, throws really hard on the mound. Uh, we think it's huge upside—upside upside on both sides. Uh, we can get him to be a little bit more athletic in the, in the box. I think we can tap into that power a little bit more consistently. And then from a pitching standpoint, this is a guy that comes off you know, from third base or come from right field and he's hitting 95 to 98, yeah, right? That's crazy. And uh, has a really well-developed breaking ball already. Uh, hey, ask Phil for a changeup and he throws strikes, right? So we're excited for him, both sides to play, And he's another guy who's an athlete, was a football player as well. So we think it's enough, we think it's a lot of upside with him, getting him to focus solely on baseball as well.
2: Now, when we talk about two-way players, obviously we have to bring up the name, everyone knows I'm going to say, Shohei Otani. <laughs> right. But I want to ask from your chair, has Shohei Otani's impact on baseball changed the way that amateurs go about their business, wanting to be that two-way player? and then the way that organizations evaluate guys looking for that almost um, you know, way to uh, a market inefficiency. Is, is that something that both sides are, are doing? And has Otani kind of changed the game at large, especially when it comes to amateur baseball?
1: Yeah, I definitely think he's changed the game. I think it's a blueprint now to show that, hey, we, you can actually do both at the same time. And I think that the Angels and, and Billy was definitely a part of that process. And having, you know, Billy here, you know, he can kind of lead us into that process of having, you know, a two-way athlete, uh, you know, actually do the job for, you know, a major league club. It's funny the way timing works where that starts after the DH (laughs) (laughs) leaves
0: the game. I want to reference something I noticed on your Twitter. So we're talking about football players and how that affects athleticism and players in the draft. I actually saw you put out a tweet a while ago comparing arm slots and talking about the way quarterbacks are judged versus the way shortstops are judged. And I want to know how deep does your football knowledge go with that and like <laughs> does that does that make an impact on how you scout talent? Right.
1: I'm a huge foot I'm a huge football fan specifically the 49ers so but uh yeah just uh looking at you know a lot of times to you know, in different sports, they, you know, you try to separate, they try to separate like what's actually happening when it's actually a lot of the same things, you know, just about, you know, uh, like extension and release of the, of the ball. It's, it happens the same way, essentially, from no matter if you're a pitcher, uh, a shortstop, uh, a football player, whatever, whatever kind of thrower you are, it's the same type of, uh, of uh, mechanics.
2: And in general, there's a lot of guys that have played in the NFL that were drafted by MLB teams. Yep. Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, mm-hmm. Tom Brady, Todd Helton, a throwback there of sorts yep. for the younger crowd. What do the two sports have in common that lend each other very well to each other? Because we were at spring training, we're watching Brandon McIlwain track down balls in center field, and he almost looks like a wide receiver running a, a, you know, a Hail Mary route or a cornerback trying to pick off a deep pass. So what is it about football and baseball that has so much intersection, if you would?
1: I, I think the, the, it's the coordination being able to you know to move especially with, like you talk about brandon right mm-hmm. playing the outfield and, and and also how that correlates to being like a wide receiver or even a cornerback right so a lot of times as, as an outfielder when you, that ball is hit over your head you turn and burn and, and run and you might take your eyes off the ball just like a receiver you run your route and you don't look back at the quarterback the whole time right so you run your route, and then you get your head around and find the ball. So it's the same thing in outfield, right? You take off to the spot, you turn around and find the ball eventually, right? Um, but it, it's also that coordination piece of being able to move around with grace, you know, mm-hmm. and body athleticism, control. body control and all, and all that, and then having the strength component to go with the ability to coordinate as well, right? So um, it's definitely a, cor- uh, a, a correlation between both of the sports. And that, that's why I think you see a lot of, you know, intersection between, you know, guys playing football and baseball.
0: Yeah, I remember a few years ago, there was a championship round in the playoffs where all four quarterbacks had played college ball. It was like Kaepernick, Brady, uh, I want to say Russell,
2: and right. like somebody else, but like every single one had played college mm. ball at like- Ohio. It's like Immaculate Grid live on the podcast <laughs> trying to rack our brains, figure out. That would be a good one, guys who played multiple sports. Right, right, right. Be, we could be onto something, that's, right. that's not right. bad. <laughs>
0: Why don't we talk about two more players in the draft and just round out okay. draft talk. Uh, let's talk about Nick LaRusso and uh, Pregent, who yeah. actually just, not to date this interview, but just did his first home run in PSL
1: last <laughs> night. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, those two guys that, that kind of helped us they're, uh, you know, senior, senior guys that we can kind of, uh, that we liked, but we can kind of like use our pool money to help us get some of the other guys that we'll probably bring up later. But uh, yeah, two guys that we like. LaRusso had a great season with uh, Maryland. We liked the potential of the bat and uh, Prejent athletic catcher that we like. We think he's gonna be a good defensive catcher and have some offensive ability that he's already showing now.
2: Now, when we take a step back and look at the draft class as a whole, Two numbers stick out. 17 of the 23 players selected were college kids, and 15 of the 23 were pitchers. What's the general philosophy by going college, obviously guys that are a little bit closer to the major leagues, and also going arm-heavy in the draft?
1: I think it's more, <clears throat> it's not, it wasn't like a strategy. Okay. We, our strategy is to take the, the, best, the best player okay. every time, every, every pick, right? Uh, but I do think it's just built-in that, you know the further you get away from the top rounds, high school players usually become unsignable right uh they want a little bit more money, and where the the college players are a lot more signable later in the draft so that that, that that's probably you know the gist of it um but then the arm the question about the arms um, you always want to you know take arms of course. You know, it just so happened that when we get to got to those spots, the arm was kind of like the the highest guy on the board at the time, right. right? And so, you know, you, you're, we're excited for all the arms that we took, you know, uh, college players. And um, yeah, we think they all have stuff and a chance to be, uh, have a chance to start.
2: And in general, uh, going back to the college versus high school thing, do organizations look at college guys as almost a safer bet? You know, there, there's less variance of outcomes because they're a little bit more developed, whereas high school guys, there's just not as much track record there?
1: Yeah, I, I guess it depends on the strategy. I think the the variance thing could be a, is a, is a positive as well cuz the variance is on both sides right, right. so he sure. can be that that player can be a bust or he can be end up being like a impact impact player at the major league level right so uh but definitely the the information on college players is more plentiful right sure. and so you kind of have an idea you know what you're getting uh but I think that it's all about how you line up your board and where those guys fall, you know, that, and then are, sign, are they signable at that spot with, based on your pool.
0: After the draft, you know, we obviously are at the trade deadline just passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of players that the Mets just traded for were players who were drafted just a year ago. Right. Uh, how much of your knowledge can you
1: impart on these players that the Mets just traded for? Yeah, Drew Gilbert, he was a guy that was really high on our list last year. Uh, a player that we really liked, uh, I think he can impact the game uh, as a premium position player in center field. Uh, he's got some pluses, right? He's a good a chance to be a plus defender, uh, he's a plus runner, he has a plus arm, uh, he's a grinder in the box, he's got some sneaky pop to the pull side, uh, good, really good at bats, uh, and he's an adder in the clubhouse.
2: Speaking of Gilbert, I've used this expression the last two nights when talking about him. You, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, and Vito's gotten on me for this one. I said that he's a guy that, that plays like his hair is on fire. Can you back me up with that one? Oh, 100%. There you yeah. go. I, told I, started,
0: you. I didn't think it was a bad you. term. It's just like you said it like two or three nights in a row, and I was like, right. "We get it, John." But it right. really fits, Drew. Right? Like right, that's yeah. that's Drew Gilbert. Yeah, right, definitely. Yeah,
1: he's a he's a, he's a player that we call a grinder, right? Okay. Right. He's I like that better. A, right. Right. Well, I'm gonna yeah. keep saying hair on fire. <laughs> right, right. I'm gonna keep saying it. So. But the good part is like he's a grinder, but also he has tools. Yes. Right, and he he's got tools to impact the game. In multiple ways on both sides of the game right and so that's the exciting part about drew gilbert uh, and, and again like it was a player that we liked a lot last year
2: how about ryan clifford an 11th round pick the astros went over slot to sign him maybe one of those high school guys with the variance is, is up here what do you what do you think about ryan clifford? yeah he was
1: another guy that we liked a lot last year uh but also like we talked about earlier sometimes the the, the dollar figure for high school players don't match you know the round all right, the time right. and then you know, he made it, you know, it was a deal made with the, the Astros, but ton of power, you know, and, and uh, he, he's got patience at the plate. Uh, again, another player that we liked. Another ton of upside on him. Uh, excited to see that he's off to a good start in his pro career.
0: And then I think to round out the trade deadline talk, one that was the biggest surprise to us, which I think Mets fans should be the most excited about because it's just a crazy circumstance. Dominic Leone gets traded for Jeremiah Jackson from your old organization, the LA Angels. I mean, I just, I would love a professional like yourself to explain to Mets fans how important a trade like this is. You pick up a guy like Dominic Leone midseason, you're able to turn him for prospect talent. Like, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I can talk about uh, Jeremiah as well. Uh, He was a kid that we liked a lot Mm -hmm. in, in the 2018 draft. And, uh, you know, ton of upside still, I think, you know, he's going to be, he's probably going to be a type of player that's a little bit, needs a little bit more development to get to reach his peak, but ton of upside. I think he's playing outfield a little bit now too. Yeah. And so he, he's got some versatility. He's already has he's already tapped into some of his power potential. Uh, we think that we can improve him on, as a, on play discipline and whatnot and more contact value. But uh, yeah, he's another player that, you know, we liked in the 2018 draft process and then obviously Billy and uh, has a lot of uh, history with him as well because they drafted him with the Angels.
2: Now let's turn it back to the 2022 draft. A couple guys who have already started their pro careers Mm -hmm. in their first seasons and just killing it. And the first guy I want to talk about is Jet Williams who Vito and I find ourselves talking about every single night we do the podcast recapping the night that was on base multiple times. Many people think that he fell to the 14th pick because of his height. Now that seems to be a, a mistake by the first 13 <laughs> right, right. teams that picked. Right. Talk about Jet Williams, what you saw in the scouting process and how that's translating to now him at Brooklyn at just 19 years old.
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything we saw of him as an amateur, it's already playing out well. Like, we knew he had great play discipline. We love the swing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an exciting and, and uh, uh, electric player. Uh, he can still bases, you know, what she's doing already. Yep. Um, He's showing his versatility. He can play shortstop, second, center field. You know. He's doing everything that we thought he, he would do and, and more. Uh, the play discipline is just, I mean, it's unmatched right now for a 19-year-old at, yeah. at, at, uh, at the level he's playing at. Uh, so, yeah, we're extremely excited. And I think to touch on what you said, he probably fell only because he was uh, under six foot.
2: And we spoke to him in spring training before he's gotten off to this great start to his uh, professional career. And we asked who some guys that he models his game after our and he gave us names like Alex Bregman, yep. Mookie Betts, some, some shorter players, right. which, which makes sense. When you guys see a, a player, a young kid, do you guys instantly jump to trying to compare that player to someone that's already in the major leagues that's easy to say, oh, he looks like this or he looks right. like that? Or do you say, hey, no,
1: he's his own guy. That's Jet Williams is Jet Williams. Right. I, I usually like to not compare players as much because uh, I always think of the best players you think about across the spectrum of, of baseball are, are snowflakes to me, right? Like the, the, the greats, mm-hmm. they all, none of them really compare to each other, right? So sure. I'm hoping that when we draft a player, he's one of those snowflakes, you know, where it's like, man, I can't think of a guy to compare him to. Well, he's, he's, he's the first of his kind, right? So, but definitely, you know, Jet comparable to, to Bregman and, and Mookie a lot because, you know, exciting players, with, you know, under six foot guys, but, you know, still have some power. They can run, it's excitement to their game. So yeah, if Jet ends up being Mookie Betts, <laughs> we'll be all excited. <laughs> I mean, we talk about this every night, but the fact that he
0: almost is on base half the time. Right. I mean, that is just an insane thing to see when you're a fan. Uh, another guy from that 2022 draft, Nick Morbido, got one of the fastest bat speeds in the organization. Yeah. Uh, tell us what you think about him.
1: Yeah, exciting player. He, his uh, his development probably a little bit behind, of, you know, Jets a little bit because he wasn't on the. Um, you know, the, the normal uh, high school circuit the year, the previous year and like the summer circuit that I just spoke of earlier that we, you know, usually uh, evaluate the players on. Uh, but, you know, we thought he was a great talent. You know, he's a plus runner. Uh, he has plus bat speed like you spoke of. So we, I, we think we got some sneaky power into, in him. Uh, and then he's developing as a defender, uh, playing a little second base, playing a little center field. So whenever he figures out, you know, where his home is, you know, uh, he'll be good at that, too. We
0: spoke to him at spring training and uh, talked to him about his time in the Dominican Summer League, where he went with Jacob Reimer and um, how important that experience was for them. And uh, just in that conversation, just learned so much about him. But one, I mean, I remember John and I were both blown away that he was wearing a hoodie, a thick hoodie, in 95-degree PSL heat. You He's, know, that's his, gonna, he's rocking his Lululemon. Okay. Lululemon hoodie, you know, that's going to be a tough kid. But uh, let's talk about Jacob Reimer. Also in that Kevin Parada, Jacob Reimer, Nick Morbido draft class, They, as I said, they went to the Dominican League together. Uh, how do you feel about Reimer so far? Because it's been really exciting to talk about him every night.
1: Yeah, and Reimer's another one where, where we like – ahead of where we actually got him he you know got got to us we're super excited and uh you know he can do a lot of things we love the plate discipline we love the t- potential for power we think there's a chance that he could stay on the dirt somewhere and uh, yeah we think he can impact the game on the offensive side for sure so Reimer Morbido Jet, there are three
2: players that we've seen play a multitude of positions Yep. Jacob Reimer's first game with the Cyclones played over at first base. Right. He had been playing third all year. Yep. Jet has played some center field. Um, Luis Angel Acuna, another guy with the Mets just acquired who can play yep. second short center field. So it seems like there's an emphasis on guys that get on base, guys that have great patience, and guys that are flexible in terms of where you can put them defensively. Is that something that the organization is really focusing on? Because it seems like there's a plethora of those players right now.
1: Yeah, definitely, of course. Uh, the versatility part is, you don't know what your big league team makeup is going to look like, of you know, in two, three, four years. And that's right? who have a shortstop name, Francisco indoors. So the ability for a guy to play different different spots and if, if, especially if he can impact this on the offensive side, being able to stick, the, stick him in and if he's a league average or better defender at a different position that he's normally not, you know, accustomed to playing, that's huge. Now we get a, a you know, above average bat into the lineup and a guy who can defend at average level at least
0: when you are evaluating talent as a scout, how much are you thinking organization first and organization needs and what works in the system versus what you as a scout with your experience knows when you see a player and has that raw talent?
1: Yeah, we're, you're definitely, from a broader sense, you're looking for what the organization has set forth as far as what, is, uh, you know, what uh, works at the major league level, what correlates to success at the major league level. So yeah, you're definitely looking at that And then but you're also looking at using your own experiences to hopefully, you know, maybe something that in our within our processes that doesn't stick out for a player, but maybe he's an outlier. Right. And so we're still looking for those type players as well. But we're definitely focusing in on the things that correlate at the major league level to success.
2: To invoke a little football here, Bill Parcells once had a famous quote about how he bought the groceries and also made the dinner or something like that. I might have messed that up, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, definitely.
2: Now, in amateur scouting, you're kind of buying the groceries and then you're delivering those to the people on the player development side Mm -hmm. who are getting their hands on these young players and trying to get the most of them. Mm -hmm. So in the last few years, you guys have seemingly hit on not just the high draft picks, but the mid to later round picks as well, guys like Tyler Stewart. Christian Scott, Cameron Foster, Paul Gervais, Eli Ankeny, Dylan DeBrock. The list goes on mm-hmm. and on. So from your perspective, how good of a job are those in the player development system doing, maximizing the abilities and the talents of the guys that you are finding and almost passing off?
1: Yeah, I think uh, one thing to, that the Mets fans will be excited about over, those last few, over the last few years where we've hit on a lot of these lower draft picks because we've have uh expanded our collaboration with player development into our draft process as well mm-hmm. and so now we have it's so much uh, synergy within you know uh the draft and the player development we're getting those players that hey we can actually get this type of player better and so we we're expanding on that collaboration and we've actually we actually this year we've expanded on it even more
0: so the draft ends what do you guys do like day one it's over our I want to know from a perspective of like, are you all guys all going out for drinks, having a good time, <laughs> and what is just step one of like, let's get back to business. Well, you know,
1: after be honest, be honest. After the last day of the draft, <laughs> that's when that's when the pressure starts because it's one thing drafting them. Now you got to go sign them, right? True. So okay, good point. Right. So so yeah, we're focused on signing the players after we take them. And uh and then also focusing on moving our, our sites to the non drafted free agents. So we've signed like three non drafted free agents and infused them into the organization as well. So we still feel now that the draft has been cut down to twenty rounds, we still feel like it's a lot more talent still out there that maybe not get drafted. And so we're focusing on that. And so- then and then to add on to that. Then we're also moving on to 2024. Of
0: course. So you're saying there's no Hanna get together. You're not going out for <laughs> hibachi, having a good time. Nah, you gotta, usually, you're just grinding. You
1: know what, usually a lot of our evaluators, they're hitting, they're hitting the airport so they can go out and either get back to their families for a couple of days before they head out to the Cape and scout the Cape or before they head out to PG national or some of the different events. So a lot of, you know, we're working still.
0: Yeah, you know what? Me and John were texting about this too with the draft this year. Uh, how did you feel about the setup? Personally, we were pumped up on it. Like the way it looked on the feed at this at the football stadium with the cool backdrop, like it felt like, it felt electric. It felt different than, obviously different than any other draft in the past, but it felt like there was an energy around it that's like getting baseball fans more excited for what's coming down the road.
1: Yeah, definitely we're trying to move to a spot where our draft is kind of like an important piece right you know where like other sports the draft is very important but i think it's been not as important for fans as much because those players don't affect your major league team right away but if you can get the fans to be excited about those players and now knowing that you know we have less forms you know less teams in the form system so those players are actually going to get to the big leagues a lot faster now. They, they get out of a chance, just like, you know, guys we drafted last year, Jed and Reimer, they're already, high school players are already in high A, you know, and it's a chance they could probably touch double A next year or something like that. So definitely uh, getting the fans more excited for the players that are coming into, the, into systems.
2: And beyond that, how much has the draft changed? It used to be held into caucus. I'll MLB Network in Studio 42. Bunch of tables crammed in that room. Right. Now, like Vito said, there's a grand setup, uh, And you mentioned 20 rounds, you know, shrunken immensely from yes. what it used to be. And don't forget, a month.
1: A month later, a month later, a month later, later. Yeah.
2: at the All-Star break. So just in general, has that kind of changed the way, and probably not as much as the, the site. Caucus, mm-hmm. uh, New Jersey is a beautiful, t- beautiful place this time of year. <laughs> you spent a lot of time there. I have spent a lot of time <laughs> there. Um, but really just everything else about the draft, how much has that changed your job?
1: They've added on to, like, different process. So now we have the combine, right? right? So right. they do the combine, like, a couple weeks before the draft. So I think what it's what is done It's created a lot of space in between where we're usually in the, ending the season and we're jumping into, like, draft meetings, and then we're picking the players, like, two weeks after the, 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 season, the college, like, regular season has ended. And then they're usually still in playoffs, too, right? Now – the College World Series is done and everything is over and now you're picking the players, right? And then there's some overlap into like scouting the 24. So it's just building out a system and, you know, making sure our processes are right, going into uh, continuously evaluating players, continuously uh, taking in more information on players because the draft, with a lot more data is collected. And so just using all that information and giving us more time to make decisions
2: I want to take everything back to 2013. Um, you discovered a young player out of Santa Barbara, California,
1: yep, by the yep. name of
2: Jeff McNeil, You're right? Um, who was a nondescript ball player at the time. What were your first impressions of Jeff? And when you saw him, did you immediately think, this guy's going to one day not just win a batting title, but a major league batting title?
1: <laughs> I didn't think that far. Okay. But <laughs> I thought he, he had a chance to be an impact major leaguer. Okay. Because of the simple fact that, when I saw him, he's a plus runner. he was a plus defender. Uh, he played in the middle of Diamond. I saw him play shortstop, second base, and center field at Long Beach State. And then he had uh, you know, huge, great contact skills. Only thing he was missing was power, right? He was tall, thin guy, uh, and then he was a plus makeup guy. He was a real, like we talked about with Drew Gilbert. Jeff was a grinder as well in college, you know.
2: Did he, uh, he play with his hair on fire also? Yeah, he played okay. with his hair okay. on fire. <laughs> right. I told you, I told you. Right. Okay, right.
1: And so, uh, yeah, he checked a lot of boxes. That type of player, Jeff McNeil, doesn't get to the thirteen, the twelfth round anymore. Uh, right. In, in today's draft, like he goes, you know, top five rounds. You know, so uh, just the the nature of you know more information on players, and then you know th- th- those type of players being uh, more valuable now. Uh, so, yeah, did a great job with that one and uh, glad he's, you know, impacting our team.
2: And what can we learn from the story of Jeff McNeil, a guy who was in the minor league system for a little bit longer, came up at a later age than some, but has been an all-star, like I mentioned, has been yeah. a batting champion. What can fans that are maybe a little impatient with some prospects take away from that Jeff McNeil story?
1: Yeah, everyone's timetable is, is different. Yeah. Um, it's okay. I, I think we all want the player to be impactful at 21, 22, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> that will be great, yeah. but that's unrealistic, right? Sure. So um, it's fine for him to be, you know, get to the big leagues at 26 and then give us eight to 10, you know, strong years, you know, that's all we're looking for, right? And so, uh, again, the timetables on players are different. They develop different. Jeff probably would have been there a lot sooner if he hadn't got hurt. He dealt with some, a lot of injuries in the minor leagues. Right. And then also, you know, him developing more strength to his body and then adding some power to his game. so that takes a little time on, on certain players, but you know having a, a player development system that's built for all different types of players, you know we'll have the fast mover that gets there, and we might have a guy that's a little bit slower to get there, uh, but you know all we just want him to get there.
0: That's amazing to hear from the player perspective, but what do you think from the organization perspective is a good note to give fans of why they should be excited for the years to come.
1: We're doing a lot of, of integrating, uh, new technologies, new information, uh, our, our player evaluations for, as far as like scouting is getting better. We're, we're getting better. You know, that that's, that's the most positive thing. Uh, and I think that the proof is in, you know, our ability to, to our drafts the last few years have been really strong. Uh, are you've seen like what we did at the trade deadline, getting Mm -hmm. even more talent. Uh, So all of our processes are are strong. Uh, I think our decision-making is strong and we look forward to a good future.
0: And uh, I think the most important question we have for this entire interview is, uh, will LeBron James bring the Lakers another championship? And is a bubble- Big Laker guy,
2: there's a little background there. (laughs) is
1: Is a bubble championship enough? The bubble championship is real in LA and we don't care what anybody else thinks. It's real, real. it's real. Is it, wait, 100% real? Oh, it's real, All right? So it's a real mm. championship in LA.
0: Where do they have the trophy? Is it like in a bubble at a
2: <laughs> cryptocurrency arena? Like, is it under a plastic shield? <laughs> no. The tree falls in the woods <laughs> and no one's around to hear it, Drew. Does it make a sound?
1: People were there. People I were guess there. there were some the people The players there. were there and the people saw it on TV. I do you and Dodgers so.
2: fans talk a lot
0: about how we love our bubble championships? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Hey, in L.A., they all count, right? (laughs) So, But, uh, yeah, I think uh, LeBron can bring us another championship, so we're excited for that.
0: Does his number get retired, or does he get a statue outside the arena?
1: Oh, he's getting both. He's getting both. both. Wow. He brought us a chip. (laughs)
2: All right. Well, Drew, you brought us a lot of information. We can't thank you enough for the time. So much to look forward to. So thanks, and Mets fans,
1: we'll see you in the future.